Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening and welcome to episode 00093 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host broadcasting to you for the first time in 2021 from Radio City Docklands, the new and refurbished Radio City Docklands, I should add. I, <laughs> I don't actually know whether I should be, uh, be telling you this or not, but um, I set myself up as a, a multinational, or at least pass myself off as one, I managed to cipher millions of dollars that were supposed to go to my phantom employees as uh, job seeker and job keeper benefits. <laughs> anyway, it's enabled me to um, spare no expense in being able to get a new baseline Apple computer to uh, assist with all of this. Anyway, as we know, uh, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, uh, there's been a fair bit going on this week, uh, and this program is here on the Triple R Grid to cover how some of these issues will impact the lives of First Nations people. So tonight, we'll be covering a couple of larger stories of the week, uh, Facebook and the vaccine rollout. Now, we know that there are there is breaking news in relation to Facebook, but we'll cover that as well. So um, we'll look at uh, what impact the Facebook ban has actually had on First Nation media services around the country during the last week in a bit, which are like those media outlets that are part of the oligopoly of giants that rely on Facebook um, revenue for about 4 to 6% of their online traffic. Smaller providers uh, rely on Facebook a whole lot more. In fact, simply wouldn't, some simply wouldn't exist without the, the traffic derived from the trillion-dollar monolith. So in the first half of the show, I'll be joined by Naomi Moran, who was the Vice Chair of First Nations Media Australia, to find out what that all means for First Nations voices in the media. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Dr Jason Agostino, who is undertaking vital work at the moment with the National Aboriginal Community-Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO, in preparedness for rollout of the vaccine to Aboriginal communities across the country. There's lots to dive into there, so we'll have a very considered discussion with him about the challenges and what's at stake if things don't go to plan. So that's the show for this evening. As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. Uh, this is the mission on 102.7 Triple R FM. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. And to our first subject matter and our first guest. Now, a social media platform used to check how racist your relatives really are. How many anti-vaxxers are amongst members of your book club? Used to check on how your ex-partner is going. You can post grandiose updates on how you're living your best life just to annoy your enemies. You can post content that allows its algorithm to know what's in your innermost thoughts and post conspiracy theories about Hawthorne's domination of the 1980s and early 90s was really about. No, I'm not talking about LinkedIn. I am, in fact, talking about Facebook. Last week, the biggest social media platform there is universally banned all Australian media outlets and beyond, including your Triple R, from posting content to its pages. The ban was in protest to new media laws being legislated by the federal government 
that will require the trillion-dollar company to pay news providers for their content. As is the case with the Australian media landscape, the impacts of the ban have been felt inequitably by smaller media providers that rely on that rely on Facebook to reach their audiences. Now, in late breaking news, you're probably already aware of this, the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has announced that the government has reached a deal with Facebook that will see Australian news content restored in the coming days. Now, to talk about all this and more, I am joined by Naomi Moran. Naomi is the Vice Chair of First Nations Media. She's also, and primarily, a Yungabal, Akawal and Dungadi woman from New South Wales and is the General Manager of Australia's only independent Indigenous newspaper, the Koori Mail. Her career in Indigenous media spans over 20 years and includes experience in print, television and radio. And I'm very pleased to have Naomi on the line with us now. Naomi, welcome to The Mission. Thank you so much uh, for, for having me. And, you know, with us mob, when we say welcome to The Mission, that's usually welcome to our home and our community. So... Um, <laughs> Feeling very uh, connected in in some way when you say that, so thank you. <laughs> well, that's great. You're one you're one person. I don't have to explain the uh, the title of the show to, so that's fantastic. <laughs> now, first no of all, what what do you make of uh, this afternoon's announcement? I look obviously very pleased to hear that there's been some uh, traction from, I guess. Um, uh, a whole of, of community response, uh, not not just from the Indigenous media sector, but obviously from uh, the Australian community as a whole about how this has impacted on uh, media outlets in the country. Uh, obviously, from, from our perspective and from our point of view, um, we're very relieved that this decision has, um, you know, been considered and will now... Uh, see the reinstatement of our media organisations on the Facebook platform so that we can continue to do our job as media providers for our communities and our people. Yeah, it really, it really was a, a callous move, I thought, from, from Facebook. And, you know, despite all the politics around, you know, the government wanting Facebook to pay for, for news content, but it was, a, I thought, a very callous move during a time of pandemic to stifle so many very important voices um, at, at such a, a crucial time. Um, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, Naomi, uh, independent news outlets rely on platforms like Facebook a lot more than than the big companies uh, like News Corporation and, and Nine Media to, to drive traffic to, to the websites. What has it meant, this ban, over the past week and a bit for uh, for some of the independent First Nation media voices out there? Yeah, as you said, like we're, you know, we're not the same as the other media providers here in the country. And I guess, you know, what we've been talking about a lot is how this has obviously raised uh, the, the bigger picture, raised the bigger issues behind the bigger picture, which is how underfunded and under resourced our sector is in this country. And that um, in a period of time in the 21st century, you know, we're still heavily dependent on cost-effective ways of uh, sharing news content and, uh, you know, our stories through our news platforms, uh, primarily in this case being social media and through Facebook. Um, you know, so for us it's about, well, maybe this is uh, now a prime opportunity to start peeling back the layers as to why 
we aren't quite there yet as the Indigenous media sector and how that's been neglected over the many decades that our sector has existed because our media organisations haven't just popped up out of thin air. They've actually been some of the most trailblazing media organisations in this country. Um, so I guess for us it's now taking a look at all the contributing factors as to you know, why last Thursday happened, how damaging that was to our sector and our organisations and how we could potentially now learn from this and move forward and support our sector for the future. Do we have any indication just yet what the, the New Deal means for, for news organisations, say, as, such as the Courier Mail? We know that the government struck a deal with uh, Google a couple of weeks ago. Has there been any benefit from that deal flowing through to organisations like the Courier Mail and other independent media? Yeah, look, I mean, look, the, the Courier Mail has obviously been um, been on the radar for, for, for many years. We turned 30 this year and, um, you know, got the government and government agencies and, and, and major key organisations around the country in terms of how they communicate to our people, whether it is campaign messaging, you know, education um, or employment opportunities, have definitely um, taken advantage of the Grimail being a... Um, a trusted platform, um, you know, to reach out to our communities. So, um, you know, at the moment, um, we haven't had any direct conversations. We haven't had anybody directly approach us to discuss what this potentially means for us down the track. We weren't part of the shutdowns. Our Facebook remained open. Um, so we were still able to filter some information through over the past few days, um, you know, as an Indigenous media platform. Um, and in terms of today's decision and how this potentially affects uh, our organisations over the coming days and moving forward, uh, there hasn't been much information on that yet. Uh, naturally, First Nations Media Australia being the peak body that, um, uh, you know, uh, the Indigenous media organisations sit under in terms of membership and our job to support those organisations as a peak body We'll monitor that. Uh, we will definitely push to be part of those conversations moving forward and make sure that um, I guess we're definitely on the agenda in terms of what happens next and encouraging, uh, you know, the uh, encouraging Facebook and encouraging the government and government agencies to, to I guess, really uh, be real about how this, this needs a black lens now, um, you know, over everything moving forward and, you um, you know, how we operate needs to be considered for the benefit of our communities receiving vital information. Well, I can certainly vouch for uh, the Koori Mail. It's a, it's it's a must read, especially if you um if you're looking for a, for a job across any of the various sectors that uh, Aboriginal people are involved with. It's an absolute go to because if it's uh, not in any of the major news outlets, you'll know it'll be in the uh, in the Koori Mail. And apart from that, uh, you carry you cover really important you know, local grassroots stories week in, week out. So, um, yeah, if you haven't yeah. subscribed to the Courier uh, Mail, do it. But, you know, especially workplace. If you've got a workplace um, that wants to get abreast of issues affecting First Nations people across the country, then I can thoroughly recommend the Courier Mail um, to you. Um, let's have a – just go broadly here, Naomi. How is the how is First Nations media looking? How What's the media landscape for First Nations people looking like at, at the moment? Yeah, look, what we've, um, I guess, really focused on since since that decision happened on, on Thursday of last week was um, First Nations Media Australia as a peak body making sure that um, 
uh, we were the point of communication between our Indigenous media organisations and the people who can really stand up and um, really push for that to be overturned and changed. And it seems that, um, you know, our contribution, how big or small that, that may have been received at the other end, uh, potentially has made some difference um, in this. And we're hoping it's definitely... Um, you know, um, been thought-provoking in terms of what happens next. So what we did was uh, make sure that we started uh, communicating to the people who could basically filter our messages back, uh, you know, to the top. And so that meant contacting uh, those that were in um, minister profiles or portfolios within the government, uh, looking to um, our Indigenous members of parliament as well, sending them correspondence and hoping that that was then filtered through um, to people who could make some some key decisions and take some leadership on our behalf. And what, uh, so what kind of, what kind of response did you get, Naomi, from, from those politicians? Look, yeah. Well, look, we had an instantaneous response from Senator uh, Mullandary McCarthy, uh, which we're obviously extremely, uh, you know, grateful for and, and we appreciate her support there in terms of, um, I guess, pushing um, for our correspondence um, to be received at the other end. Uh, so that was really important for us was to look at people who could potentially uh, be influential in helping turn this decision around. Uh, so we hit the ground running with that. And then I guess, um, you know, essentially we had to make sure and look after, we had to look after our, our members and our and our sector. And that meant... Uh, making sure that we were having conversations with each other so that we can bounce ideas on how to um, create other avenues of content sharing and get some messaging out, especially with the rollout of, of the vaccination information and, and the pandemic and the options for those who may choose to um, take, you know, um, participate in, in being vaccinated, um, how we could best share that information. Uh, so a lot of engagement um, straight away off the bat between our individual organisations in terms of how we can create other other avenues of, um, of sharing for our people so that they don't miss out. Uh, I am speaking with Naomi Moran, who was the Vice Chair of First Nations Media. We're talking about uh, the ban on Facebook over the last week and a bit. Um, I guess, Naomi, while so many mob, and we know that Facebook is the, the chosen platform for so many mob across the country, it's going to be difficult for, despite how callous, you know, Facebook itself has been over the past little while, it's going to be very difficult for independent um, independent media outlets to, to wean themselves off this because the audience will be there and, and there's no signs that it's going anywhere from, from here on in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you look at some of our organisations that were or leading Indigenous media organisations that were affected by this and shut down straight away, I mean, you know, we're not talking about organisations that, that aren't well-known or haven't been around for a while. We're talking about National Indigenous Television. Yep. And when you look at their Facebook page that was up and running, you know, there was almost 400,000 people that were engaged with their Facebook um, Facebook page. Uh, when, you, when you think of the National Indigenous Radio Service, uh, which is a national service for our communities around the nation, um, you know, um, our Indigenous media sector reaches out to around 340 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities around the nation. And, and the NERS radio service pay, plays a massive 
uh, role in that in terms of um, news hours on the hour and, and the stories and information that is received by our communities. They were shut down on Facebook. We've got some other leading um, media organisations that have been part of, you know, those trailblazing years like Galari Media and Bummer Bipper and, you know, some of our southeast Queensland media organisations as well. So as you can imagine, um, I guess existing as it is, um, you know, in the 21st century as an Indigenous media broadcaster despite being severely underfunded and under-resourced is a massive, you know, achievement. And then to work really hard over the past decade to establish themselves on uh, online presence and platform um, and, and in this instance through uh, social media and Facebook has also been another massive achievement because the amount of work that's gone into engaging people through that platform, you know, is huge. And then just to have that kind of stripped away, like you said, it's really callous, um, you know, it's really dangerous as well in terms of our people missing out on vital information. Um, so there's a lot more to it. And I know, you know, and like you said um, in your intro, you know, we can joke around about, you know, the pros and cons of Facebook and social media, but we're just really asking people to consider, uh, I guess, how our sector operates and and how our communities and, and in terms of culture and how we communicate and share information, how that all works and consider just how uh, damaging this has been. Each one of the services you mentioned then, Naomi, have their own websites, have their own web presence. So if people want to, you know, go the extra effort and support these um, organisations and institutions more directly, then we certainly encourage downloading any apps that might be associated with any of these organisations, visit the websites, um, sign up the mailing lists. Um, that's, you know, some of the ways you can get around um, the, the Facebook I guess almost. Um, I guess it's almost yeah. a monopoly, really. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, one of the biggest um, conversations that's come out of this is how we can can really utilise, uh, you know, other other platforms, uh, being websites or or other channels of information sharing um, for for the peak and for our organisations over the past few days is about uh, engaging with platforms like Indigitube. Uh, where yep. we can um, provide provide content for them to share across that platform and really driving people back to Indigitube, um, I guess, as a really kind of solid platform uh, for information sharing, just as much as we would with our individ individual websites. I mean, look, sadly, and again, this comes back to how um, underfunded and under-resourced our sector is, is that some of our most regional and some of our very remote organisations don't necessarily uh, have the resources um, through websites and, and, and other platforms uh, just because they haven't been able to establish those to, you know, the full full potential that we know each of our organisations, um, you know, should be doing at the moment. Um, so it is very hit and miss at the moment in terms of websites, depending on where you're located geographically. But ultimately, uh, we're looking at key things like in Digitube being a central hub now. Um, I mean, look, even though the decisions, you know, been overturned and slowly we'll see, um, you know, them drip feed, I guess, um, you know, the reinstatement of those pages. But, um, you know, we should all still be kind of focusing on what other key areas of information sharing we can um, contribute to. 
Indeed, Naomi, there is much food for thought that's come out of all this. And so that's one of the positives, I guess, that's come out of uh, the last week is that um, it's made a lot of people think about the role of uh, social media and the power that giants like Facebook have. Uh, You mentioned um, uh, the importance of uh, the National Indigenous Radio Service. I'm very pleased to say that as of last week, uh, this show, The Mission, is being um, rebroadcast on that service, 9pm on Thursdays. So um, I can vouch for the National Indigenous Radio Service as well. Um, Naomi, oh, thank you so much well for done. your time. Thank you so much for your time. Um, no keep up the good fight. All. Let's stay in touch. Uh, we know that you've got a submission yep. in the government that will um, hope to address some of these issues. So uh, we'll get you back on in the not too distant future to see whether the government's going to come to the table on some of these matters. Sounds great. I look forward to catching up and thanks again for your time as well. It's been um, fantastic to have this support on air. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Okay, on to our second subject and our second discussion tonight. So we're beginning to see the end of this global pandemic, at least on uh, paper, as the rollout of the vaccine starts to occur across the country in what will be the largest logistical exercise ever undertaken in this place. So who better to talk to than uh, Dr Jason Agostino? Jason is a GP and an epidemiologist who has worked mainly in the field of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Since graduating medicine from, um, from medicine, he has worked in rural Australia with a focus on child health and does clinical work with, and I hope I'm getting these names correct, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Garyini, uh, Yili Maka and Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Service in the community of Yarrabah in far north Queensland and is a medical advisor at the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. And it is in this role with Nacho that he's working closely with the community controlled health sector and the health sector more broadly to ensure the rollout of the vaccine to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is as seamless as possible. No small task as a number of logistical language and cultural issues need to be overcome to make it thus. But Jason is on the line with us now. Jason, welcome to the mission. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. So let's um, let's start broadly. Um, how are things shaping up at the moment for the rollout of the vaccine to First Nations community? Yeah, things are good. So um, a couple of weeks ago, we put out a call to Aboriginal health services across the country to ask, you know, who was interested in um, being a vaccine provider. And over 100 of our organisations, which cover more than 300 sites across the country, have, have said that, yeah, they're, 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 they're keen to be a vaccine provider. So we're working with them now and with the Australian government to get them all ready so that come the second half of March, uh, we can start a vaccine rollout um, through those clinics. Yeah, so let's um, let's talk about the, the tiered system that the, the government has outlined. So there's a phase 1A, phase 1B, phase 2A, phase 2B and phase 3. Um, phase 1A yeah. is currently being rolled out and that is to quarantine and, and border, border workers, frontline healthcare workers, agent disability care staff and, and residents. I guess the, the, the phase that where the rubber starts hitting the road for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is um, phase 1B. Yeah, that's it. You know, there's definitely um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people getting vaccinated now as part mm-hmm. of 1A. Like, I'm 
you know, I'm here in Canberra and Wananganimacha is the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Service here and has a GP respiratory clinic. So a couple of their staff got the vaccine yesterday, which is great, but you're right. Um, for people outside of those frontline services and in nursing homes, uh, one B is when we start, we're going to start vaccinating a large amount of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population. There's been a lot of talk around the Pfizer vaccine versus the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, uh, I guess that the message is to, to the broader community and to any mob that are listening tonight is that um, despite the Pfizer vaccine showing you know, a 90% rate of, um, I guess, immunity for, for, for people, the AstraZeneca um, uh, uh, vaccine is just as solid and is actually in a logistical sense, far easier to transport and get to communities in the Pfizer vaccine so we can actually get herd immunity quicker through the um, AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, that's right. You know, so, you know, when we're thinking about a vaccine rollout, you know, the effectiveness is definitely one important thing, but, you know, we need to get a vaccine into people's arms. And yep. the big advantage that AstraZeneca has over Pfizer is that, we can make it here in Australia. We're not dependent on, you know, getting shipments from overseas. We'll be making a lot of it here um, come the end of March. And you're right, the, it doesn't need to be stored at minus 70 like the Pfizer. So getting it around the country um, becomes much easier um, if, if we're doing that. So um, it has definitely has some advantages over the Pfizer vaccine. Given that we've so I find ourselves in a very, very fortunate position here in Australia in terms of having basically no, you know, um, community transmissions in, in the community anywhere across Australia at the moment. Um, there have been concerns raised within the community from some sections of the Aboriginal community that the process needs to be slowed down to make sure that we get the messaging consistent to community and we create awareness for, for GPs who may be required at some point to... Uh, distribute a vaccine to um, any Aboriginal person that turns up to a clinic um, and needs to prove their identity. Um, are you confident that those touch points are, are, are being thought of and considered as we, we roll out the vaccine? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, you're right. Australia is in an amazing position and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in an even more amazing position. You know, we're talking one year into this pandemic, and zero Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Phenomenal. deaths, um, which is just, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's incredible, you know, and it's a real testament to the community. Um, so, you know, because of that, uh, Australia was only the second place in the world that went through full reviews of the evidence before approving the vaccine. For starters, like all those other countries, they needed to, you know, do what they call an emergency provision, you know, based just quickly on what they could see in the evidence. Whereas we've gone through the same procedures that we do for any vaccine that exists um, that we've ever had in, in Australia. So that's been great. Um, and we're definitely hearing that, um, you know, we need to get messages out to community. And, you know, we're working with the state affiliates and um, with the community controlled health organisations to get those messages out. Um, around, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people presenting to new gen practices. Um, yeah, we are, we, you know, we've just confirmed that, you know, the case for general practice in Australia is that um, some, if someone says they are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, we believe them. You know, there is no need to prove it beyond self-identification. And we're getting the message out that to, to all the GPs so that they understand that because, you know, we're concerned that more harm can be done if we're, we're trying to place this 
burden of proof on on people to prove who they are. So what at this stage, Jason, we're looking at phase one B sort of kicking up around around March. Is is that correct? Yeah, that's right. You know, the I, they say the the second half of March. I think the, the official line is that the twenty second of March. But you know, we need to. Um, you know, shipments of the vaccine need to come in from overseas for the first lot um, before the Australian production really kicks up. So there might be, you know, a few weeks around that, but really the end of March is when we're looking at it. So do we have any um, indications? So it, <laughs> it's a million questions, Jason. I'm sorry about this, but there's so many questions yeah, that um, they need to be need to be um, spoken about. Uh, in, a, in a practical sense, what, what do we know of the way... Um, uh, hubs will be rolled out for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We'll, we'll say uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service here in, in Melbourne um, or Rumbalara in Shepparton, will they act as um, uh, Indigenous-specific hubs for, for, for MOB if they want to get the, their injections um, of the vaccine done? Or is, is, it, is it going to be a broader sort of, I guess, regional health rollout of the vaccine? Yeah, no, it's um, it's what you said the first part. The, you know, the the idea is that yeah, Vars and Rumbalara will be vaccination sites, and that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will, will be able to go to those sites. But it won't be limited to only that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. multiple other GPs across Victoria and in Melbourne will also be vaccination sites. And you know, if you choose, you don't want to go to Vars or you don't want to go to Rumbalara, that's that's fine. And there'll be other options for you as well. So. But, um, yeah, we're aiming to get as many of our social um, health services across Australia as, as vaccination sites and starting in that late March period. Uh, did you ever think this time 12 months ago, just after the, uh, the virus had actually reached our shores and started taking a toll here, did you, did you ever think that just a little bit over 12 months after that that we would have a vaccine beginning to roll out <laughs> across the community? Uh, I, uh, I think I I was one of those people that didn't appreciate how difficult it was to get a, a new vaccine. You know, I was like, oh, you know, they get a new flu vaccine every year. Um, and uh, but then I, under, you know, had to understand the uh, the complexities of a brand new virus and, and getting a thing for that. And so it is, and it is incredible, you know. And um, it's really been some you know, new knowledge that's been developed, you know, in the past few decades that have made this vaccine possible. Um, And so it is really an incredible thing. What I didn't expect at all, I guess, was that um, we'd have been so successful in in keeping it out of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities up till now. You know, I think everyone feared for the worst, but but what has happened has been um, a really great, great outcome. Yeah, I remember um, being very staunch in the early parts of using my platform here in Triple R to speak to people and just indicate to them that their health is as important to to me as my health is to me in a, in a global pandemic. And we've we've been very yeah. very fortunate in in the Aboriginal community to 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 dodge that bullet that is COVID because as we know we are a, a strong but nonetheless vulnerable cohort when it comes to. Uh, issues like this with all our various um, co-morbidities. Um, so when would you expect, uh, Jason, there to be, I guess, a point at which we can say that we here in Australia have herd immunity? Um, I think that's going to take some time, you know, not really till the end of this year. And, and that's for a few reasons. 
The first is that with the AstraZeneca vaccine, it you know with sorry with all the vaccines you need to have two shots, and with the AstraZeneca vaccine it, it looks like it works best if you space those two shots three months apart. So even the people that you know get the vaccine at the end of March, we're going to be talking June until they get their second one. Um, the other thing uh, is that. Studies are still going on at safety in children under 18. And, you know, almost 40% of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mm. population is less than 18. So, you know, we expect that it'll be found to be safe and effective for those age groups. But, you know, we're not planning on vaccinating kids under 18 uh, until the back end of the year. And it's it's not until we start vaccinating that group that um, we're, we're going to get close to uh, herd immunity. So you know it is a it still is a long haul. Even though one one shot provides more coverage than not having any shots, um, uh, but and you know one of the messages that is going out is that you know all those uh, physical distancing stuff and hand hygiene stuff that we've been practicing for the past year needs to carry on mm-hmm. um, because just because you know I don't know probably about. A couple of thousand people had a vaccine in the last two days. It doesn't mean that we're, we're out of the woods yet. I'm speaking with Dr Jason Agostino, who is advising uh, Nacho in his role, not only as a GP, but as an epidemiologist on the rollout of the vaccine to First Nations communities across the country. Uh, so just to wrap up, Jason, I guess the, the message is just to reiterate what you just said, that we are going to be in um, a period of COVID normal for the foreseeable future and, and probably the, the remainder of this year. And so just keep doing the things that we've been doing, socially distance, wash your hands, wear masks indoors and um, look after each other. Don't go to work if you are sick and um, all those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. That, that, that is the key thing. And I guess, you know, the other thing is that there's a lot of misinformation going on about the vaccines at the moment. So, you know, if you've got concerns, that now's the time to go into your clinic and, and have a chat to a health worker or a nurse or a doctor about it, you know. Um, go to someone who's actually you know, read the science about it and can, can talk to you about what you're concerned about because, you know, we really want people to um, be taking, taking up this vaccine. Yep, the, uh, the the solemn duty of uh, healthcare professionals is to provide people with the best advice in their for their welfare. And um, if you have any questions around the the vaccine and um, any side effects, or you're concerned about how it uh, may be administered, or if you're scared of needles, go and speak to your local health practitioner because they will give you fearless and frank advice that is the best for your interests. Um, Jason, thanks so much for coming on the on the show um, uh, this evening. Good luck with uh, the rest of your work and um, let's uh, keep in touch. Great. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.